welcome to the Riley Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Today, I speak with Jan Stoika, co-founder and chairman of Databricks. In full disclosure, I'm an advisor to Databricks. Also, Jan is a professor of computer science at UC Berkeley, where he served as co-director of AmpLab and is now uh, the director of the succeeding lab called Rice Lab. So this episode will focus mostly on Rice Lab. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Mike Franklin, and we talked about the legacy of the AMP Lab. But in this episode, we talk about RICE, and RICE seeks to build tools and platforms that enable real-time applications on live data while maintaining strong security. As Ian points out, users will increasingly expect security guarantees on systems that rely on online machine learning algorithms. So it's important that these systems... Uh, guarantee the privacy of personal and proprietary data. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So, Ian Stoika of UC Berkeley, uh, welcome to The Data Show. Thank you, Ben. So, we are recording this a week before the official end of the AmpLab project. Uh, as many of our listeners know, AmpLab originated, among other things, Apache Spark, Aluxia, which was formerly called Tachyon, and uh, in many ways, also popularized uh, Apache Mesos. But there are, there, out of AmpLab, there were a lot of projects. So, Ian, are there any particular projects that you think deserve a lot more recognition among the audience out there outside of uh, academia? Yeah, th- thanks, Ben. Uh, yeah, as, as all of you know, there are a few quite successful projects, so you're lucky, and they come from the AmpLab. Besides uh, Mesos, Spark, and uh, Aluxio, like uh, you, Ben, said, there are quite a few other projects. So I would just name a few. One would be uh, BlingDB. So BlingDB was one of the first projects to provide approximate query processing at large scale and run on top of Shark, which was the first SQL engine on top of Spark. So BlingDB got great results because when you do you can you do approximate query processing, you have this nice property that for many queries, the accuracy of the query depends not only of the original data size, but depends on the size of the sample. So to improve the accuracy, you just increase the size of the sample. Um, which makes it a very nice, it's a very nice property. So it doesn't matter about how much data you have, the original raw data. Ian, is BlinkDB uh, something that will, that is inside Spark now or will become part of Spark? What's the status of BlinkDB? So BlinkDB was, uh, of course, was uh, open source and was used by quite a few people. The... But like I mentioned, BlingDB was originally on top of uh, Shark. Uh, in the meantime, as you know, we moved two years ago, two years and a half ago, we moved from Shark, which was basically Hive, running Hive over Spark, uh, to our own SQL engine, which is Spark SQL. So BlingDB capabilities are yet to be ported on top of Spark SQL. We had we have simple prototypes on top of it, on top of Spark SQL of BlinkDB, uh, and we are looking forward to actually provide the full functionality of the original BlinkDB on top of Spark SQL in the future. So I um, I, I have a, 
I have a project for you, an app lab project that I've written about that uh, uh, I liked a lot, succinct. So yes. first, yeah. explain what it is and uh, tell us what's the status of it now. Perfect. So um, this actually was uh, next on my list. So succinct, it's about providing query processing capabilities over compressed data. So this means that you do not need to uncompress the data before querying it. And when we are talking about queries here, we are talking about pretty powerful queries like substring matching on the data, which allows you to support regular expressions and other kind of queries. The advantage of not uh, uh, uncompressing the data is, of course, that you can operate on a much more uh, smaller footprint and with a smaller footprint comes the advantage of being able, for instance, to keep the data, to keep the data in memory. You know, it's um, in terms of the compression that Saxin provides, it's uh, think about GZIP level of compression, but of course with the ability to, like I mentioned, to make queries on this compressed data. Um, it, can, it has a lot of use cases and you can use as an index. You can use, uh, for instance, to uh, look and search on the text metadata and in addition to the text itself. In terms of status, succinct, it's available and it runs on top of Spark, uh, both on the RDD, on top of the RDD abstraction and on the data frame abstraction. And we already have a few uh, early users who... Uh, we are working on to to deploy and succeed in uh, production. Another project that I've uh, championed is now mostly found in Spark uh, around the ML pipelines. This project was called Keystone ML. And uh, what I liked about it is that it was a project which really emphasized the notion of pipelines in machine learning, inspired by deep learning, thinking of deep learning as a pipeline, Keystone ML sought to build primitives yep. that, that you can then combine and maybe even optimize so that uh, you can build large-scale, reliable, and robust machine learning pipelines without having to uh, be limited to deep learning, number one, being much more transparent, number two, and not maybe not having to think about how to piece all of the primitives together. Yep. Uh, so it's Keystone ML, it's everything you said, Ben, and you said it very well. And um, I think there are two, two things to say here. So one, it's indeed, uh, you know, Keystone ML um, advance the state of the art of writing complex uh, pipelines and being able to express various components, stitch them together, and then optimize these uh, components in the pipeline. In terms of the status, Keystone ML is again, it's open source today. And also there is another aspect I want to emphasize. Uh, it's uh, impact that Keystone ML had on uh, MLlib, which is uh, the official machine learning library, which is running on top of Spark and comes with a Spark distribution. So some of the, you know, the pipelines advocated and pioneered uh, by Keystone ML pipeline features are making their way or already have made their way in uh, MLlib. And so now you are leading a new lab 
called RICE, which stands for Real-Time Intelligent Secure Execution. And I guess the goal is to go from live data to real-time decisions. So a couple of things uh, immediately stand out, Eon. First, what kinds of problems is this new lab uh, attempting to solve? So let me... uh... Great, great question. So let me start, uh, take a step back and start a little bit from a higher level. So why we do this lab? And again, just to also put in context with respect to AMLAB, which we talk, we just talk about the AMLAB. Um, the AMLAB mission was to make sense of the big data using a holistic approach, combining algorithms, machines, that is systems and people like crowdsourcing. And the ultimate goal is to build this um, stack, analytic stack, next generation analytics stacks to be used across industry and academia. And, but if you look, think about the, the main use case of uh, the AMLAB stack, it was to provide advanced analytics at scale, by adva- advanced and interactive analytics. So we want to enable humans to make interactive queries on huge amounts of data. So moving from here, the RISE lab it's going, it's aiming to provide, uh, like you said, Ben, real-time decisions on live data. So uh, there are two differences. One is a transition from analytics to decisions. The other one is transitioning from what was mostly queries on batch data to live data. So why is that? It's because if you look more and more what people try to do is their data is to use the data to make some decisions or to take some actions which will improve their product, business processes, and things like that. Actually, you hear more and more today that don't data is only as valuable as the decision it enables. So now, if you buy this uh, premise, then what Rice Lab is doing, it follows naturally. Because the, if you think about decisions, then on one hand, in general, faster decisions are better than slower decisions. Decisions on fresh data are typically better than decisions on stale data. And also, more controversially, but still true, decisions on personalized data are better than on aggregate data. So the goal of the uh, RISE lab is to build platforms, tools, and algorithms to support applications which requires to make these decisions on live data. And in particular, our goal is to support this, to support real-time decision on live, de- live data with strong security. By real-time, we mean in kind of, we are thinking about doing decisions in milliseconds or tens of milliseconds. When we say on live data, what we mean is that we want to make the decision not only on historical data, but on the current state of the environment. Think about we want to factor in the decision process change in the environment, which are a few seconds old. And with strong secu- when we say strong security, what we mean is to provide privacy, confidentiality, and both data and computation integrity um, for these computations. By the way, Ian, when you say decisions, my interpretation of that is this is beyond kind of simple, uh, yes. simple rule-based decisions. This is online machine learning. That's absolutely correct. 
Yes, when we talk about decisions, there are several aspects of the decision process. Uh, we capture the, you know, when we talk about decisions, we are thinking about what we are, typically we are characterizing the decision by the, what you call quality. And quality has multiple aspects. One is uh, how sophisticated is the decision. And indeed, here we are not talking about just rule-based decision. We are not talking about some SQL queries. You get an aggregate and then you compare the result with some, some fixed threshold. Think about fraud detection. Think about forecast. Think about coordinating in real time a fleet of drones. Uh, so this is one uh, aspect of the decision process. The other aspect is the accuracy, right? You want to have you want decisions which have low false positives and negatives. And the final one, which is arguably one of the most important aspects of the decision process, is the robustness. And robustness uh, means not only to be robust in respect to the noisy inputs, because the inputs today are noisy. If you think about um, images, pictures, or machine logs, or user logs, but also to be robust in respect to the unforeseen data. Because if you are talking about the online machine learning, in many of these uh, cases, you are going to train a model based on certain examples. And as long as you get inputs which are similar with the examples you use to train your model, things in general are fine. But what happens if you get an input which is extremely different from the examples you used to train your model? So in those cases, you want to be robust in, in the sense that you want to make sure that you take you are conservative when you are doing in the face of uncertainty. And of course, this in the first place requires you to understand that an input is something you've never seen before. Just to give you a trivial example, assume that you uh, train your model to, on images of cats and dogs. So with today's state of the art, it's pretty easy to, to train a model which accurately uh, recognizes pictures in which you have cats and pictures in which you have dogs. But now assume that I'm showing you, uh, I'm showing that uh, classifier an elephant. So in this case, you may you need to make sure that you don't classify this elephant maybe like a, like as a dog or or a cat. But you need to the classifier should say that I've never seen something like this. So I think that's one of the, of the challenges. We are looking actually at. Uh, kind of taking that security aspect of the lab. I know that you guys talk about privacy, confidentiality, and integrity, but in this setting, you can imagine an adversarial attack on the system. Totally. And if and if it's not robust, then it will spew out all sorts of uh, bad decisions. And also, the other thing is that it turns out that some of these uh, systems, even a slight perturbation in the incoming data produces all sorts of garbage results, right? So. Yes. And this is even, it's, it's absolutely correct. And one aspect is also, it's extremely important here because you are talking about real time. So in the real time, you, in many cases, you don't have a human in the loop. So this means that the robustness of the algorithms, the security of the algorithm is even more important than it used to be. Yeah, in your in your notion of real time, actually, I interpret your notion of real time as true real time in the sense that there's no yes. human. There's no human. Yes, like I mentioned, it's it's we are looking to make decision in on in time uh, on time scales of milliseconds, 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 or 
tens of milliseconds. And as you described it in your uh, presentation at uh, the Spark Summit in uh, Europe, you have this tension between low update latency and yet low decision latency. Yes. Yeah. So if if you look at any decision system, uh, Ben, you know, as all of us know, typically you have some input, some raw data like user logs, machine logs, or you know, video streams, and then on this raw data you are eventually going to make the decisions. And of course, you may also have a feedback loop, so you are going to use the outcome of the uh, existing or the past decisions to inform and hopefully improve the decision in the future. But if you look a little bit deeper, uh, what happens between the raw data and the decision is typically you have two stages in many of the systems. The first stage, it takes the raw data and pre-process it to create some intermediate data. Think about, uh, in the case of online machine learning, the pre-processing step is training, and then the intermediate data is a, is a model. And then in the second stage, you have maybe some human, or you do this uh, on automatically, in which you, you, you have the decision process in which you operate on this intermediate data, right? Think about, uh, about inference, right? Uh, classification, right? You uh, ask, a, you send a query from a user or from a, from a device, and based on the model you have, you make a decision. You frame it in terms of decisions, but uh, I think the the acronym of intelligence actually more accurately captures what you're trying to do, right? So in many ways, it's a narrow. A- you're talking about narrow AI systems, but they're they're. Uh, constantly being up uh, challenged by new data, maybe new attacks, uh, and yep. things like that. Abs- yes, absolutely, absolutely. And but, but going a little bit about the trade-off, so now you have a trade-off because between the pre- how, lo- how, much, how long you are going to spend in the pre-processing stage versus uh, how fast is the decision. Because in general, if you spend more time in the pre-processing stage, um, you can come up maybe with more succinct representation of the models and so forth, so you can make the decisions faster, typically. Um, and But if you do that, then your decision will happen on uh, older data because the pre-processing stage, it will take more time to create that intermediate model, so therefore the model will be based on uh, older data. So that's uh, that's a pretty fascinating trade-off, and this occurs in many many systems, including the old databases or the pre-processing stage. Is a ETL extracts, transforms, load, and then on the decision st- side you have a human which makes queries against the cubes using maybe a business intelligent tool to uh, look at the data and to make decisions. Hey, so um, a, 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 a couple of things, Jan. One is. Uh... First of all, I, as, as if uh, the listeners don't know yet, Ian, besides being a distinguished professor in computer science, is a serial entrepreneur, He's co-founder of two companies, Conviva and Databricks. And in fact, AmpLab in many ways was inspired by Ian's experience at Conviva and Mike Franklin, his co-director's experience at Truvisa. So first question is, uh, is Rice also inspired by your interaction with industry? 
That's a that's a great question, Ben. Yes, you you always are inspired by the interactions you have with people, users, customers, and um, you know this is no no different. Um, and you know we've seen in the case of uh, DataBricks, uh, which uh, provides an end-to-end data platform uh, for data processing, which is doing everything from ETL exploration, advanced analytics, um, and allows you to build models and run them in production. And here we see more and more that customers are being interested in using this data to make specific decisions, decisions which are specific to their services, to the service they provide or to their products. And you can think about the ad market, or which is a classical one, or our uh, marketing. There are, there are so many now uh, marketing applications. To me, the thing that stands out, Jonas, uh, so I think you probably heard from people a lot about real-time, intelligent real-time applications on live data. But uh, when did you start getting interested in the security aspect? So the security aspect, so, so, so here is a, it's, it's very simple. It's very simple. There are many of these, so there are, there are two angles. There are several angles here actually about security. So one angle is that typically when you want to make these intelligent decisions, um, you want to actually also target to do target decision, you know, per user decisions, per customer decisions. And now there is kind of um, a tension, of course, between you, uh, which provides a, a platform to make these decisions, and you can get a big utility from uh, learning across customers' data. And that also ultimately will be valuable for the customer because a better decision you can make you can also provide more value to a particular customer, but in order to make this kind of better decisions, it helps you tremendously if you look at, across customers' data. Uh, on the other hand, of course, the, some customers, like if you think and we have, we see more and more like in the financial services and uh, healthcare, customers do not want or they cannot because regulations share with you the data. So now that's a question, right? How you are going to, um, to learn across customers based on, on, on their data while maintaining the confidentiality um, and privacy? So no, that's what, what I like about uh, your concept, actually, so a lot of people talk about real-time, right? So even real-time intelligence. But you've put security kind of as a first-class citizen in this, in this uh, uh, lab. Yeah, because again, we don't, we cannot see how you are going to provide support for this large set of decisions without ensuring security. It's again, it's like if if you go into financial market, if you go to healthcare and so forth, how you are going to do it without ensuring the privacy of the data? It's 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 very hard. Uh, let me put in another way. You we all know, and this is very well known that the decision would be better if you can use the per-user information, right? It's a no-brainer. Right. Now, but the, the, the question now is that, you know, it's like it's more and more people are 
privacy aware and the user are privacy aware. And it will be harder and harder to get that information. I'm not even talking about uh, enterprise. So if you can provide the same level of service, here we are talking about the same level of decision quality, while ensuring that the data I'm operating it is private. I, 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 if I tell you that, that I'm going to use your data, but it's going to be private, it's not going to leak, even I am not going to know your data, you are going to be much more likely to share that information with my tools than if I don't give you that guarantee. Yeah, so so the once you get to low update latency and low decision latency while ensuring strong security, I think this is inherently what makes this uh, undertaking difficult, right? Yes, yes, uh, that's uh, absolutely correct. And we have a bunch of examples which illustrate that uh, this, uh, these challenges. Um, I'm not sure you, you've seen one of our examples is defending against zero-day day attack. Oh, no, I haven't seen uh, that. Yeah, so, um, so, so maybe I should go through these examples because this illustrates all the challenges and why you need it. All of these uh, components, like making decisions on live data uh, with strong security. So you know that today um, you can, viruses or worms can infect millions of machines in seconds. So assume that you want to provide a solution to defend against this kind of attacks. So you can think about that an ideal solution would be to, in real time, to monitor the traffic of many devices, servers, and hosts, uh, routers in the network. So monitor all this traffic in real time, and then based on that traffic, learn when there is an attack, and then once there is an attack, try to defend also in real time. How you can defend it, you know, you can try to patch application in real time. For instance, if it's JavaScript, you can, uh, you know, it's easier than in other cases to patch those applications. Or you can install new filters in your firewalls to filter out the attack. But uh, if you're going to do those manually, you're away from kind of the real time. <laughs> so this is what I'm trying to say. So now, assuming that you do this, but it's again, you can do all this automatically. You can actually even, defending about the attack, you can come up with what are the rules for the firewalls and you can install them immediately. Uh, you can generate patches automatically for many of these applications. So that's one thing. But again, if you, if you think about these applications and you want to do it because you, you want to do it in seconds, right? Because like I mentioned, in seconds, you already can have millions of uh, machines which are compromised by a new virus, by such attacks. So now think about what you need, right? First of all, you need, you, you need to make sophisticated, it's a sophisticated decision, right? Because uh, every new attack it's slightly different because here we hope that for the old attacks, you know, you, you already have, uh, you know, your firewalls are configured correctly and your software is patched and so forth. So every attack is slightly different from the old ones. So you need to learn that and you need to learn that in seconds, right? In order to do that, you need to collect a lot of data because the more data you can get and you can analyze the easier is to create these new models. Now, not only you need to, to, to be able to detect, but you need to do that in a robust way. Right, right. 
Because here, what does it mean false positives or false negatives, right? It is very important to be very low because on, on one hand, you do not want to miss an attack. On the other one, on the other hand, you don't want to misclassify some legitimate traffic as being an attack, right? Because then you are going to shut down a legitimate application or service, which is, which is, which is bad, okay? So now in terms, again, of timing, you want to detect in seconds, maybe to make the decisions and to defend uh, in milliseconds or tens of milliseconds. And finally, what about security? Okay, so security on one hand, your algorithms to be robust, right? It's, uh, you don't want someone to fool the algorithms, again, for instance, to deny the service of a legitimate service. But the other thing is that here in this application, I have to get as much data as I can from as many devices and the, as diverse set of devices as possible. So if I can guarantee you again that I can maintain your privacy, right? It's much more likely that you are going to, you are going to let me monitor your traffic, right? Then if I cannot guarantee you that kind of uh, security. Um, so that's one. I guess similar to your earlier example, which is if you can guarantee strong security, I'm more more likely to let you uh, use Absolutely. your AI algorithms on my personal data. Yep. And the last one is that if you think about, uh, you know, more and more of these application or services are deployed in the cloud, right? On the public cloud. Now, this is a third-party infra infrastructure. So if you want, you are going to run your mission-critical service or application on a third-party infrastructure, it's, it's, you, know, you are going to be much more likely to do that if you are guaranteed computation and data integrity. Okay? So what we hope is that by providing strong security, you are going to increase the reach and being able to analyze and make decisions on more and more data. And you can also, by providing strong guarantees, when you run your code on a public cloud, that we can accelerate even accelerate the transition to the cloud. So, uh, Jan, there's already a couple of projects that are associated with this new lab, RICE. One is called Drizzle, which uh, reduces Spark streaming uh, latency by at least a factor of 10, and then uh, Opaque. So maybe uh, uh, give a quick summary of uh, these two projects. But actually, before you do, uh, I'm assuming uh, the mission of the lab is to provide a platform to, to realize the vision, which is real-time decisions on live data with strong security, right? Yes. Um, so, yeah, let me... Let me start with these examples and I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to yeah. the mission of the lab. Um, so the first project, which is called Drizzle, um, it's about to, the goal is to dramatically reduce the latency uh, in for Spark streaming or, you know, the new version of Spark structure streams. So, you know, the main idea there is that to remove as much as possible any bottlenecks in processing the data as the data comes in. And as you know, Spark streaming has this, uh, it's, uh, it's a micro-batch, takes this micro-batch approach in which, you know, it 
partitions, the data as it's coming in, in small batch, is very small batches, and then process each batch and then update the aggregates or whatever data you are going and the results you are going to compute. Um, so what are these bottlenecks? So these bottlenecks have to deal with sending tasks to the workers to process each of these micro-batches, um, deserializing the tasks and running them and so forth. So for each micro-batch, micro the master, the Spark master, has to be involved in processing it, in sending the task again to the workers and then workers run the task, then workers are going to report back to the master for, and the master then can start the processing of the next micro-batch. So one of the main ideas of uh, Drizzle is quite simple. Try to eliminate the, as much as possible the master's, uh, Spark master from the critical path. And the way to do that is that instead of sending one set of tasks at a time for each micro-batch to be processed, the master can set a group of tasks which are going to process a group of batches, say the next 100 micro-batches, okay? And then for these 100 micro-batches or 500, this is a configurable parameter, the workers can schedule individually the tasks for each subsequent micro-batch without contacting the master, okay? So that leads with, and other optimizations to dram dramatically reducing the latency of processing these micro-batches. So we can get now from hundreds of milliseconds micro-batches to tens of milliseconds, okay? Which puts us in the, which is in the same ballpark with the light latency provided by the best a record at a time uh, streaming engines uh, which are out there today. What about uh, what about uh, fault tolerance? Does it suffer? It's absolutely not. Actually, the micro batches actually it, we inherit all the advantages. And um, you know, micro batches and initially that's why we designed a Spark streaming based on micro batches. Is that it? All these nice properties that batch processing has, you can inherit them. This means fault tolerance. When you something fails, you can use the lineage to reconstruct the data from the machine it has, uh, which, which failed. You can also do more optimizations. Let me give you a simple example. So I'll take two examples, actually. The first one is about the optimization. Assume that you do a count, you map reduce, right? With a, if you do some, if you use micro batches on the map side, you can compute the partial counts and then you can send to reducer directly these partial counts. In contrast, if a record at a time system, you need still need to send to what is reduce all the data, all the record. And by sending only the partial counts, you tremendously reduce the shuffle size. As such, you can optimize and tremendously reduce the latency even compared with the record at a time system because you, re you reduce the amount of data which is shuffled between stages in your computation graph. The second one, it's about the second point I want to make and the second example, it's about, again, the fault tolerance. 
in general, all these systems like streaming, the way all the streaming systems, the way they achieve the fault tolerance, they take periodic checkpoints. And then when you have a failure, you go back to the previous checkpoint and you try to rebuild and reconstruct by replaying the input from after, which arrived after the checkpoint. Um, and that's fine. But as you can imagine, this can take quite a bit of time. And this is in particular critical if you are talking about streaming and real-time processing, because then this means that you are going to slow down processing the new data. What something like sparse streaming and Drizzle are doing is that they, by inheriting the fault tolerance from the batch processing, they minimize the amount of work you need to do in the case of fault recovery, because you need only to reconstruct the data which was stored when on the server which has failed. Because you know all the dependencies and you can reuse all the other partial results in the previous checkpoint which are stored on other servers. And this helps um, Drizzle perform extremely well in the case of failures. So, uh, Ian, what is uh, uh, the status of Drizzle? Is is this something that Spark users can play with at this point? Uh, not yet. Uh, it requires a few changes on uh, the uh, scheduling code in uh, Spark, uh, but uh, we are very hopeful that we are going to provide this functionality um, in uh, very likely. We are targeting uh, Spark 2.2. Oh, awesome. And then, uh, and then there's this other project called Opaque. Yeah, the, the, the opaque project, it's again, it's a very early project. And this here is a problem it, try, it, it tries to address. So today, the state of the art, when people talk about security is back in the context of the big data, um, it's, of course, you know, authentication. And then it's about encryption at rest. So the data being encrypted when it's on the disk, when it's stored on the disk or SSD, and encryption in motion. So you encrypt the data while you send it between nodes. However, that's not enough. You know, it's like, because you're, you do not run your, uh, say, Spark um, in isolation. You run it, you, you, you run it on, a operate, on top of an operating system like Linux, which run on top of a hypervisor like Xen, and you have many other things around it. And we know that, for instance, if say the attacker is successful in compromising the operating system or the hypervisor, you are pretty much defenseless uh, at, the, at the Spark, although you, you encrypt the data on the disk or while you send between the nodes, because the attacker will have full access to the memory and everything is on that node once he compromises say, the operating system or the hypervisor. So you can see the data when you operate on the data in memory, you may see your key and things like that. So these are the kind of attacks we try to prevent, okay? Um, there is another, an additional attack, it's about, and there are quite a few studies uh, along these lines that you can actually extract a lot of information, confidential information, by just looking at the traffic. So you don't see what it's in that traffic. You don't see the data. But by the traffic pattern, you can 
figure out quite a bit of information. For instance, if I query and um, something on, say, the users in, in a particular city, I can figure out uh, with pretty high probability whether the query was on the users in New York versus in a smaller city like uh, maybe uh, Berkeley, right? Because the one on New York is going to generate a lot of more uh, data in uh, in the state in the at least in the early stages of your job. And there are again solution here in acad you know in uh, academic papers. Um, it's called you know which guarantees uh, guarantees that the algorithms are oblivious. You know you cannot uh, extract information by observing the communication pattern or access pattern to the memory, but they are very expensive. So opaque, this is what it tries to achieve to defend against these two categories of attacks. It has two modes, uh, and uh, one mode in uh, in one mode. It's protecting you against the operating system or any other software being compromised on the machines you are running. And the other one is in oblivious mode. The way it's doing this is that it's using this kind of new advancements in hardware security. Um, in particular, it leverages hardware enclaves. And this is available, available today in uh, Intel chips. It's called SGX. Uh, it's also available in ARMS. It's trust called Trust Zone, uh, and also AMD just announced that it's going to be available in their chips as well. And what uh, this ENC hardware and clives provides you, it's 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 a pretty beautiful construct. It ensures that you, as a third party, can run the code, and that code in this enclave, and that code will be sec uh, protected at the hardware level against any other software on that machine being compromised. Um, so we uh, develop OPAC, so it's working uh, for, is now it's uh, for Spark SQL. So we can implement, we can run Spark SQL queries on top of OPAC. And in the encryption mode, in the first mode, uh, which protects against the operating system or other software being compromised, uh, the performance are quite good. Actually, in some cases, a funny thing is that the queries can execute uh, faster than in the case of Spark. And the reason for that is that we had to implement the operators you have to implement in C++ because SGX um, tools and libraries are in C++. So sometimes we get a little bit of benefit from C++ versus the Java implementations. And so we are very excited about that. We also have oblivious version, but in this case, you know, it's a little bit slower, so uh, quite a bit slower. So maybe stored or magnitude is slower to execute the same query in the oblivious mode uh, as opposed to um, non-secure Spark uh, or unsecure Spark. But on the other hand, you know, you in terms of how you, we are pretty hopeful and you are pretty happy because it compares very well with the state-of-the-art of other solutions which provide the same kind of properties in terms of security against, so, um, against leaks based on observing the communication and memory 
uh, accesses, access patterns. Um, in particular, we, I think it's, you know, it's three order of magnitude faster than the existing oblivious solutions. You know, so this is a start. Clearly in the encryption mode, the performance are very well, are very good. If you want to go all the way and make sure that there is no leakage, even on the adversary can see the only the access patterns to, uh, you know, uh, on the network and uh, to the memory, um, then probably even that it's usable for some, uh, if you if you are really, really your data is important, I think for some workloads is practical today. So if I go to your office now, is this like kind of what you guys did in AppLab, which is you... In the early days of AmpLab, you had these empty box, uh, these boxes for the stack, and you were trying to figure out what do we need to build out this uh, vision for AmpLab stack. So, is there a is there a equivalent sketch for what are the components you need to make uh, the vision of Rice come true? <laughs> yes, we are starting to have that, and um, you know, uh, I hope that we can present the very first iteration, say the iteration zero or minus one, as the first uh, Rise retreat, which will be in January. Awesome. Uh, so Mike Franklin has this funny shortcut of describing the last two Berkeley labs, which is, I believe, he he says, uh, Rad Lab was uh, machine learning people consulting for systems people. And then Amp Lab is the reverse. It's systems people helping machine learning people. So I guess Rice Lab is security people helping both machine learning and systems people. Or uh, everyone helping each other. Yeah. Right. That's another thing. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, So yeah, the security is a big new angle. Uh, But I do believe that, you know, like you mentioned, that the real timeliness and doing making these decisions on live data brings new uh, challenges uh, both onto the systems and machine learning uh, areas and one last thing you know you asked me before so what is the goal of the rice lab so like in the case of the am lab we are about building up we want to build a platform tools and algorithms to make it much easier uh, for users to build applications which requires real-time decisions on live data with strong security. Uh, we do believe this is extremely important. And, um, you know, that's what we are, it's something which are, so we are super excited to work on. So in, in closing, so when you were describing op- Opaque, it occurred to me, you talked about Intel and ARM. And so, so hardware, I think, is some one of these things that people don't talk about or think about enough. So is hardware going to be something Rice is also going to be thinking about? Yes, there are so many things, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. Um, indeed, we are going to um, to focus and work much more closely with the architecture people. It's and it's the reason for that. It's kind of obvious, right? You hear that, and this is true. The more slow is slowing down. And this means the corollary is in order to maintain the improvements in performance to sustain that kind of improvement curve people are expecting, there will be more and more hardware innovation. So that's why you see, you know, GPUs, you see processing uh, processing, uh, 
coprocessors co co like TensorFlow Unit, uh, TensorFlow Processing Unit. Um, you see FPGAs. So you see all of you. You see a much uh, a more diverse uh, uh, set of hardware. Uh, you prob you are going to have to target uh, to. And it's not only the, on the processing side, it's also on the memory side. You have uh, more and more memory. You now you have servers with um, terabytes of RAM, and you have more and more parallelism, even ignoring the GPUs. Now you have servers with over 100 of cores or virtual cores. And you have also more uh, type of memories. You, you hear today about uh, 3D Crosspoint, which already Intel and Micron, they have products which promise to be just slightly higher latency than RAM, but then it will be 10 times more, uh, it's, it's higher, 10 times higher capacity. So these are really some technologies will be disruptive. So as a software developers, you have to take advantage of them. And this is one thing is actually different from say six, seven years ago when we started to work on Spark, where you know GPUs are something you it's pretty peripheral. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's changed dramatically in the last uh, few years, right? If you think about machine learning. You know, everything or almost all the major algorithms now are on G They have GPUs uh, implementations. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you, Jan. And uh, we'll look forward to news out of Rice Lab and I'm make sure that uh, our listeners and our readers are kept up to date. Thank you. It has been a pleasure, like always, Ben. We now have over 80 free reports on many topics in data science, big data, and AI. They cover trends, tools, techniques, and applications. Go to O'Reilly.com slash data slash free for a complete list of our free reports. You can follow Jan Stoika on Twitter at Databricks. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.